Kyoto World. I'm Kaz. I'm Liz. And I'm Lindy. And together we are Cult Chat. We're coming to you over the airways from little old Aotearoa, New Zealand, land of flightless birds, hobbits, marmite, and also some really wacky groups. And that's why we're here. On Cult Chat, we ask whether Kiwis know how to recognise a culty group and give tips on how to sniff out the telltale signs that a group is harmful. Join us as we unpack the cult playbook, talk to survivors of New Zealand cults and interview experts in the field. Journey with us as we traverse the cultiverse. Cult Chat is available on various streaming platforms and social media. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Carol Murchison spent many years in corporate law and previously worked as a partner in the Philadelphia office of Morgan, Lewis and Bocchius, and as director of Morgan Lewis Resources. She has conducted dozens of workplace investigations and taught investigative techniques to human resource professionals at many Fortune 50 companies. Since that time, she told me she's failed at retirement on numerous occasions. She has since joined McAllister Oliverius, where she heads up a practice covering sexual misconduct in religious, faith-based and spiritual communities. As an investigator, she has worked to uncover sexual misconduct within the Shambhala International Lineage of Buddhism, the Sivananda Yoga Vedanta Centres, and is currently assisting other spiritual communities in bringing allegations of sexual misconduct to light. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we start, a content warning. This episode deals with trauma, sexual abuse and rape. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening to. Later on in her career, Carol Murchison was asked to take her corporate background and use it to conduct training for leaders of various Buddhist communities. The response she received, I'm told, was one of open hostility. Certain religious leaders were not interested in understanding how large corporations worked to ensure their staff were safe and what they could learn from them. 
This led Carroll to the realisation that corporate America, a segment of society not known for its high moral and ethical standards, was doing far better than religious America when it came to stamping out abuse. Since that time, Carroll has worked with survivors of abuse and misconduct across a number of global spiritual and religious movements, and has extensive experience as both a litigator and an investigator. I was so interested to speak with Carol about the approaches she's taken with some of these organisations from a legal perspective, and I'm sure you'll be just as keen to hear what she had to share with me. Carol Murchison, thank you so much for speaking with me today. First up, can you tell me a bit about your background and work history and what took you from there to suing cults? (laughs) Well, not a very straight path. In fact, I am a lawyer and I was an employment lawyer in the United States. And so that it meant for me that what I did was, particularly in the late 90s and early 2000s, I began to help companies and corporations deal with issues of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct in the workplace, because that was becoming very much the new thing in employment law. And I did that for a number of years. And then after some time, I began doing mostly investigations within companies. And then after the kind of the beginning of the Me Too movement, I got a call from someone whom I ultimately um, decided to help on a pro bono basis. I was retired by that time. And so I helped her by doing an investigation into sexual misconduct in a large Buddhist community in Canada. And it turned out that there was indeed sexual abuse that was happening from the leader of the group. And it made, it was a lot of press. It was on the front page of the New York Times. And and then all of a sudden, I had a lot of people who were calling me and saying, would you do the same for me? Because I didn't even know that it was a thing. You know, I didn't know that that's what was happening to me. And honestly, it wasn't until... Well, I did that for four years, all pro bono. And then I found that I couldn't bring any accountability without the hammer of the law in back of me. And so I joined a law firm in London. I work remotely, but I go over there every couple of months. And we are now litigating these cases because it's the only way that we have found to bring any kind of sense of justice or accountability to survivors. And it is only then that I began to recognize the cult nature of what was going on. Then I began to see the patterns. You've outlined them in your book perfectly. I saw the patterns and I thought what I thought were religions are really cults that have weaponized the teachings of the religions. Yes, that's exactly right. And and also in many cases, uh, not religions at all, you know, or groups that eventually come yes. to say that they're religions. But uh, yeah, I think some people kind of, um, they're worried about religious freedom, which of course is, is a major concern, but there are areas where it's really not a question of religious freedom. To me, this is a question of control and abuse, right? Right. Because look, We have in the United States, and I'm sure around the world, seen the kinds of abuses that have been uh, coming out of the Catholic Church, right? We don't say you have religious freedom to abuse people. You have freedom up to the point where you are violating the law 
And that's what's happening in these cases. In my case, it was interesting because I did this Buddhist investigation and then I was asked to do a yoga investigation. So the beginning of it for me was all within communities like Buddhism, like yoga or Hinduism, that I understood to be the exact opposite of what was happening in these communities. Kind of a light bulb went off in my head that these are just, they go down a path and they become cult-like. And as you said, not even necessarily do they start out as religions, but as you point out in your book, all kinds of environmental organizations, social justice organizations, they, they run off the tracks at some point. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you say, you know, there's no, uh, there's only religious freedom up until a point of where you break the law. But, you know, so many people I speak to who've come out of cults, they go down to the, the police station and they, they tell them what's happened to them. And they're told, oh, actually, no law has been broken in this case, no crime has been committed. Yes. And so, yeah, this is the case, even if they come out with nothing, have lost decades of their life, finances, suffered various kinds of emotional abuse, sometimes statute of limitations, restrictions when it comes to other types of abuse as well. So where do you think the law is falling short when it comes to these organisations? Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. The law is falling short. So in my particular practice, we deal with sexual assault and sexual abuse in spiritual communities, and sometimes not even spiritual communities, but those others that we've talked about. And that is against the law. But you're right. Where the law falls short, and you've identified some of them, statutes of limitations are too short. So what we know is that it takes years for people to process what happened to them. And the statutes are too short for that to happen, for them to be able to, you know, kind of engage in the legal process in any meaningful way. I think the second big thing is that, at least in the United States, we do not have a recognition of coercive control and what these organizations, how they manipulate people. So therefore, as you said, when people are manipulated, when they are emotionally abused, when they are engaged in, and many of these, uh, in my experience, are engaged in forced labor, where people give up their livelihoods and then walk away with nothing, the law does not recognize that. And so that's where we need to work on the advocacy part, at least in my view. Yes, exactly. And even in countries where there are laws around coercive control, all the ones that I've looked at, they only ever really pertain to one-on-one intimate partner relationships. So they're still, even though they recognise coercive control as an issue, they're not being applied when it comes to cults. So I think it's great that there's movement in this area, but even in other countries, there's still a ways to go. I I think there absolutely is a long way to go, at least in the United States. And yes, we see those kinds of very few states, but a few that do have the coercive control in the domestic arena, but I have not yet seen it applied outside of that to the kind of group dynamics in the cult situation. 
Indeed. And I guess for people who aren't maybe particularly familiar with the way that the legal system works, when there's not a criminal angle, this is where you will often step in to look at options for civil suits. So can you kind of explain the differences between how those types of lawsuits operate and what kinds of things could fall within the civil category? Absolutely. So the way that I think about it is that in the criminal justice system, The whole point is to protect society, right? So we have a government, we have district attorneys or whatever we want to call them in different countries, but they're operating on behalf of the state to try to take bad people who are violating the law kind of off of the streets. And that's a good thing. Uh, But in the United States, at least what we know is that we fail miserably when it comes to prosecuting rape. So we do not see much justice in the criminal side of the justice system for those people who have been sexually assaulted. It's against the law. It's a crime. But the obstacles to getting to the end of the road are very, very great. They are things like, you must, as you said, you must go to the police. Well, a lot of people don't trust that the police will understand the situation or will believe them. And that is borne out in probably way too many uh, situations. Then the police have to do an investigation. Then a prosecuting attorney has to decide to take up the case then you, the prosecuting attorney is not your lawyer. If you are the person who has been sexually assaulted, for example, they are the lawyer for the state and they do what they feel in their judgment is best for the state. They may do a plea bargain. They may drop the case. And then you have to go to a jury. You have to go and be cross-examined by defense lawyers. And although we've gotten better in understanding the dynamics of rape, we do not, we're not the, all the way there yet. And then a jury has to decide that a person is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a very high standard for a crime in which there are seldom any witnesses. That's the criminal justice system. On the civil side, you have your own lawyer. We are also suing for sexual assaults, which are torts in some states and which are called out as being able to be sued in a civil court in other states. And we represent the person themselves. In other words, our ethical obligation is to do what is best for them and what they want to do. At the end of the whole road in the civil justice system, the burden is more likely than not So you can see that it's a much lower burden of proof that you have to achieve. And then no one goes to jail, which sometimes people want. They want the perpetrator to go to jail. And other times people don't. And the end result of the civil justice system is generally speaking money. Although I come across clients more and more these days who want positive change within the organization and they try to negotiate for that. Amazing. And so you have a history of investigating big corporations. Is that more or less difficult than investigating cults? Well, 
it's less difficult. <laughs> I think it's less difficult. And for a lot of different reasons, I think that because corporations have been able to invest, you know, what, millions, if not billions of dollars into legal advice, and they understand what the law is. And most big corporations have a healthy uh, fear let's say, of the law. I never want to say that people are doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. You know, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's because they think it's the best thing. But other times it's because they know that there is liability if you allow these things to go on. And so I do find that in my prior career in investigating in corporations, if I went in and said to the president of a company, this is what I have found in the investigation, there might be hesitation, but there would be no question about the fact that a person who, for example, had sexually assaulted someone would be fired. That was just without question. But that's not the case in the organizations that you and I are talking about. No, indeed it's not. You've looked into a few cults now associated with yoga centres, but a lot of people would be surprised to learn that there are abuses in something Western society mostly sees as such a beneficial practice. Yes. Is this, you've alluded to this already, but is this a big problem in yoga? I wouldn't have a way of judging whether it's a big problem, but I do have a number of cases that are involving sexual assaults in yoga communities. And I don't think that it's the practice. You know, I don't think it's necessarily, although there have been instances of people who were practicing yoga and who were assaulted while in the practice, while in a room full of people. But the cases that I see are more that leaders, like the leaders of cults, are abusing their power, they're weaponizing teachings, and they're usually involving people who are isolated in ashrams. So, for example... If I were to go on a yoga vacation, I might go to an ashram and I might pay to be there and to take yoga classes and to have, you know, some kind of a relaxing vacation. And that's great. That's probably not a problem. Uh, but for the people who staff that, they are unpaid, what are called karma yogis. They are there working with no salary of any kind, and they are isolated. And we begin to see this cross a line and into some of these indicators that we know about cults. A leader, a leader who can do no wrong, teachings who tell you that you have to do what the leader says, that the leader knows more about what is better for you than you do. That if the leader does something to you, like, for example, rapes you, that it is because he, and it generally is he, although not entirely, but the majority, that he knows better what is best for you. He's working out some kind of tension. He's working on your karma. And these are all things that have the possibility of happening 
in yoga communities, in Buddhist communities, in any religious communities, and any of those communities that are isolated and have a kind of um, maybe a driving purpose. I think you see that in, in your experience of interviewing people with cults. Yes. And so much of what you said also made me think of a lot of the kind of self-help groups that I've looked at as well. And these kind of big, you know, motivational speaking groups and, you know, Nexium, for instance, so much of that same dynamic is exactly what was going on there. And also it makes me think of the issue with the idea of the guru, I suppose. Absolutely. Whether you call it a guru, whether you call it a leader, whether you call it a swami, no matter what you are calling it, when you are asked to give away all of your power to another person who is telling you that they know what is better for your life than you do, to me, that's a red flag. At the same time, I recognize that it's awfully tempting isn't it? We live in an awfully complicated world. And there are many days I think that any of us would think, I just wish somebody would come in and make a few decisions for me so that I wouldn't have to do it because I have decision fatigue. And I think it goes to what we think of people who get caught up in these cults, which is that they are somehow incredibly naive or that they are, what, dumb, stupid? I mean, whatever pejorative that you'd like to say. And yet that is not at all the case. It is the case that any of us in the right circumstance at the right moment could be lured into one of these situations for the best of all possible reasons, which is that we trusted the person who was calling out to us. Yes, I completely agree with you. I think that's a message that I really try and get across so much in my podcast and and through the book. I feel like it's a real self-protection mechanism that people have to think of the victims of these groups as having a a particular deficit in what caused them to become involved because it, it helps you to think that it would never happen to you. But I always say you just didn't come across the right group for you at the wrong time in your life or the wrong group for you at the wrong time in your life. Yeah, absolutely. I I can't agree more. You know, the reality is that people who trust, they are exhibiting the element that we need to build civilization and society, right? We should be holding people up for trusting. And the fact that they trusted the wrong people for me means that the person who betrayed that trust is the person that we need to be going after. Not, you know, why are we always blaming the victims? You know, I mean, this is something that runs, I, I, I do not quite understand that, but it's the same thing in a way. Why aren't we saying, you know, the people who are wrong here are, of course, the people who betrayed the trust of people who legitimately believed in them. They're the ones that we need to get justice and accountability from. Yeah, I totally agree. And you may have read in my book that I personally, I got ripped off by a con artist who was very close to me personally. And people, they they really want to offer you advice, which I know is, is coming from such a good place because uh, they 
you know, they, they feel for you and they want to make sure that it doesn't happen to you again in the future. But it actually comes across as a judgment of uh, that this is something that I did wrong. Yes. And yeah, all, all I did was trust someone who I thought that I could trust. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I have to tell you that I read that in your book and I had never thought of this before. But in fact, I did something similar. And I will bet you that this is a situation that a lot of people may have had, which is that I trusted a contractor who was working in my house and who needed the money up front to supposedly buy the materials. And the next thing I knew, he had the money and he was gone. That was a long time ago. And you know, I hadn't associated in my mind until I read that in your book, that that is exactly the same thing. And a perfect example. I mean, I was a lawyer. I knew better. You know, we we do. We we want to blame ourselves. Why did I do that? Why didn't I see? And maybe in the back of my mind there was some little thing about should I do this, but I kind of swatted it away, you know, because I was anxious to get this work done and I trusted the person because they had been there working in my house. And like you, I knew them. And I trusted them. And so I think if we can help people um, think of the things where they have trusted other people, haven't we all trusted other people? Ex boyfriends, <laughs> ex girlfriends, <laughs> ex spouses or partners. We've trusted people and they've betrayed our trust. And it doesn't make us naive or inferior or in some way deficit. And in fact, trusting people is something that usually gets brings good things to your life. Yes. And so we're rewarded by doing that. And in fact, now have, I'm trying to think of the name of the book here. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, Talking with Strangers. So if you read that, you will see he goes kind of has a long winding road that he's taking. But ultimately, he says the same thing, that trust brings us a lot of good things. It is the thing that society is based on and that it's people who do not trust that are a problem. And then, of course, the problem is the people who betray our trust. So he makes exactly the same point about how much of a value that is uh, for our world. Yeah, I think you're exactly you're exactly right to say that 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 is what our society is built upon. And I I really dislike the idea that I would, as a result of this, become a really untrusting person. I don't want to be that person. So I think yeah, there's still a lot of value in trust, and but there is a lot of value in learning a few of the red flags that we can look out for. I suppose. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so across our societies, there are laws that make corporations and religious bodies accountable for their actions. So we expect these organisations to self-monitor and change course when things go wrong. But what tools can victim survivors use to hold cults to account when they don't want to play ball? Well, as we've said before, one of the problems is the law has not recognised this as a problem yet. Although I would think in this age where we have so much more information and awareness about cults 
that we might begin to get some traction on those things that we mentioned before, statutes of limitations, other laws about coercive control. In my case, we are litigating where we have a law. Every state has a law on sexual assault. And so we are using that law uh, to try to bring some accountability for survivors on the civil side, as we said, not the criminal side. And we're also using using some laws creatively uh, in the United States. So, for example, we have a human trafficking law in the United States on the federal side, not state by state, although there are state by state laws. But on the federal side, we noticed in 2018 or 19, perhaps, that Harvey Weinstein, you probably remember him, he kind of ushered in the Me Too movement, right? So we noticed that he was being sued for violating the Federal Human Trafficking Act. And I was surprised, right? I said to myself, wow, I did not remember that he was moving people across state lines. And then when we looked into it, what we found out is that the law does not require that you move people across state lines. What it requires is something that when I tell you, I think you will see how it fits hand in glove with cult-like organizations. And that is this, that you entice or recruit someone into a sex act for anything of value, and you do it by fraud or coercion. So in Harvey Weinstein's case, it was that he had enticed these actresses, and he had enticed them into a sex act by promising them something of value. I'm going to get you in front of a producer, for example. I'm going to make your career. And that promise was fraudulent. And so since most cults are engaging in enticement and recruitment, and they are using fraud and coercion, even when they are talking about religious teachings, in many cases, they have distorted the teachings uh, to be able to fraudulently promise good karma you know, any kind of spiritual enlightenment, those kinds of things. And so we're trying to use the Human Trafficking Act as another kind of tool, another tool that could help us um, to bring, again, some accountability for our clients. It also has a 10-year statute of limitations. It's not long enough. I will point out that Canada has no statute of limitations on sexual assault, but 10 is better than two or five. And so where, where the facts fit that kind of, um, of a law, then we're trying to use that. We're also using civil RICO claims, which is a particularly probably a U.S. centric Act, which was designed to try to bring down mafia organizations. And so looking at patterns of illegal activity. And so in, in that case, again, we're using the sexual assault, although we are seeing also now some forced labor claims. So these are 
important in organizations that are building huge empires of money on the backs of people who are working for nothing and then walking away with nothing. Yes, I'm I'm really particularly interested in those as well because I think that's an area where we're also lacking in Australia. We're looking at kind of exploitative labor situations when it comes to immigrants and farm work or trafficking and and sex trafficking, but there's a real blind spot in my view when it comes to cults and people who come out of cults who've worked for nothing for years, have nothing to show for it yet they're just seen as having been volunteers. So, yeah, I find that really interesting that you're working on that angle too. Yes, and the volunteer thing is a very difficult, you know, religions depend on volunteers and that's all good until people are working seven days a week, 14 hours a day for nothing. And I think that the law needs to recognize that that's not a volunteer situation anymore. You know, a volunteer is somebody who comes in maybe a couple of hours a day, a couple of days a week, and does something. But to me, the forced labor, as you've said, what we're seeing are cases of immigrants, farm workers, and a lot of coercion. So the law is looking there. The cases have a lot of coercion. People who have their passports taken, people who are kept under lock and key, you know, like imprisoned practically. But the false labor, actually the forced labor, excuse me, should extend way beyond that. It should, these laws should be broad enough to be able to look at situations in many of these communities where people are being worked to death, so-called voluntarily. But what we know about coercion is that it's not voluntary. There has been manipulation and people are not able to make that decision. Yeah, that's exactly right. I wondered if you could talk a bit about how someone goes about suing a cult when the organizational structure is unclear. It's a very interesting and difficult question. So it is possible, of course, to sue in our case where we're suing on sexual assault grounds, what I would call the the sexual predator, the person within the cult who's done the assaulting. But often they do not have any money. And as I said before, you know, kind of the the currency of justice in the civil justice system is money, although there are other things that we can ask for as well. But that's the primary thing. And just as an aside, and maybe we should talk about this, I, I, I think a lot of people say, well, but I'm not interested in the money. But I do feel that people who come out of these cults broken and who come out with nothing having given years of their lives to be betrayed, they deserve money. And I think that the reparations is something that we should be acknowledging that people are entitled to in these situations. So that was a little detour there. But if we can sue the predator, then that's one thing, but often they don't have money. So often we are trying to sue the organization as well. There's another reason that we do that. And it's because in many of these situations, people feel as harmed by the organization as they do by the assaulter. They have tried sometimes to bring this to light in the organization. They've been shunned 
they've been gaslit, they have been isolated, they have been thrown out. And so often the harm that's been done by the organization is as great as what has been done by the person who did the assaulting. But you have pointed out what is a difficulty, which is there has to be some kind of organization. And there has to be, when we're going back many years, as we are now in New York and California, where we have a what's called a look-back window. So we're taking cases that happened many, many years ago in this one period of time right now until November. And so we're going back in some cases to 1970. And we're needing to look at, was there an organization? Was there leadership? Was there notice? Because the claim against the organization is that you knew or should have known and you negligently failed to take some kind of action, which is the case always in these cults, is that people know what's going on, right? But they don't do anything about it. And this uh, kind of comes back to what you were saying earlier about some people don't necessarily want money, but they want change from within, which I think is really ambitious because so many of these groups I've looked at, it's just, it seems to me impossible to reform them. They're just built on so much kind of exploitation and manipulation and it's dependent on who's at the top, I suppose. But have you seen any movement with with people who are trying to get change to happen within the organisation? There is some. I would say there is some, but it really does, in my experience and in my view, it depends on how far down the road of cultic manipulation and exploitation that they've been. Because as you know, so many of them simply regroup, rebrand, call themselves by a different name, move to a different place and start all over again. And so what we do as lawyers and what is our ethical obligation to do is what our clients want. And I think that sometimes even if you don't have long-term hope that they will in fact reform themselves, I think there can be some satisfaction in having enough power to try to insist on some change even if it isn't long lasting. Do you know what I mean? Like it will give you some of the power and agency back that was taken from you. I can absolutely see that. And I think even if there are short-term gains to be made and the the ways that they might show people who are still enmeshed in particular organizations that they don't necessarily have to be behaving in certain ways, then that's a big win as well. It is, absolutely. And you know, there is... I have to say that if we have enough people, if we have enough change in the law and we have enough people suing cults, we may instill some fear into people that they will know that it is possible for the law to reach out to them. So many of them, in my experience, are believing that the law doesn't apply to them, you know, that they're answering to a kind of different law. And, you know, I really think that our survivors of these experiences find it satisfying when they can bring the law to these organizations to say, you know what, you are not above the law. 
Yes, you're so right. Uh, many of these groups that I've researched, they whether it's through a religious belief or some other kind of belief system, they believe that they are outside of the law. They believe that their belief system is superior to the worldly laws or however they frame this. Uh, it means that they don't feel that they should be beholden to what the rest of society is beholden to in terms of the legal structures. And that uh, is just one of the things that I think <laughs> makes it, for me, seem like a lot of these organisations would be very difficult to reform from within because they, well, they, and they even teach, right, that you are able to lie on behalf of the organisation because it's outside of the law. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, yes, and of course, the very thing, or one of the very things that makes them cults is this idea that either they are speaking directly to God, uh, which is extremely convenient when you think about it. You know, I mean, very hard to argue with that, which, of course, is the whole idea, I'm sure. And so, you know, you can't reform an organization that is built on that kind of a foundation, you know, because you have to either give up the leader or as often happens, or as what does not happen often enough, put them in jail. But even then, you're going to have people who are still believing in them. You know, it really, it is an insoluble problem if we're trying to keep, it's like, a, you know, it's like the whack-a-mole thing, you know, where you're hitting them and they're bouncing up in another place. I think that a combination of a reform of the laws and also education, as you said, helping people to understand what the red flags are so that we keep people from getting involved in them in the beginning, that those two efforts might bring us some sense that we're winning a battle against these people. And it's just, it's fantastic to know that there are some people with your talents and skills who are fighting that battle, I have to say. I know that you've been looking a lot at the sexual assault side of things, sexual abuse side of things with these organisations. And so in some areas of law in the US, as early as the 1980s, there have been rulings in corporate cases that recognise power differentials, which can mean sexual harassment has occurred, even when the sexual relations between an employee and a boss were consensual. And so I'm wondering, does the law apply a similar standard to the, the gurus many of us have heard about who claim their sexual interactions were consensual? Well, I think that that, that uh, theory of the power imbalance in the workplace and the power imbalance kind of equaling no ability to consent is one in which we are absolutely trying to transfer that to these other cases. And in addition, I mean, it's, it's not that different when you think about it. For example, the reason that that's the case in the workplace is because the U.S. courts recognize that a job is very important to people. You know, it's your income, you know, it's your livelihood, and you should not have to put it at risk because someone is making sexual advances to you or suggesting that you have sex with them so that you can stay in your job. It's not that different in the cult environment. It is coercion, number one. It is a power imbalance. And it's a huge power imbalance when you take the very things that 
that we've been talking about here as the red flags of cults, you know, the person who can't be wrong, the person who is said you are taught that they know better than you do what is right for you. How could that not be an impossible power imbalance in that kind of situation, right? So yes, we are using those kinds of arguments and we are heartened, I have to say, uh, by the recent trial in New York of E. Jean Carroll, who sued the ex-president Trump, because if didn't everyone around the world follow that trial, I, I don't know, but we certainly did here. And what I saw as a lawyer was that a jury was not swayed by the, well, you didn't scream argument, right? And so when I see that, I think that, in fact, culture is changing. The culture of consent is changing all around us. And we're now seeing it filter down, we hope, into the jury box where a jury of our peers does not necessarily believe that if you did not scream, you were you are lying about being raped. And so all of those things, I think, are positive for us. I will also mention that uh, one of the reasons I mentioned the human trafficking law, there's no consent in it. There's no issue of did you consent to be enticed or fraudulently recruited into sex. There is no issue of consent. And so using that kind of law, which we are hoping, you know, I feel like knocking on wood, you know, we're hoping that, you know, because we're very early in our trajectory of using that, but we see cases in the United States where it's been used similarly. And I think that it's, um, it also gives us some ways to expand our idea of what trafficking and forced labor is. 100%. And I really look forward to seeing how that plays out. And, you know, my fingers are crossed. I'm knocking on wood at this end as well. I, <laughs> it sounds really quite promising. Hopefully it is. And so I wondered, is there a path for other people working in the field of law to, to be doing what you're doing? So, so everybody's not running to Carol Murchison to take on these cases. <laughs> oh, yes, there are. There are many, many people in the United States who are doing this. And I s suspect around the world as well, because, you know, all we need to see is a kind of creative way of using the law. As lawyers, we need people to get out there and advocate for change in the law so that we can use the law so that we can take the cases that we need to take for this whole vast group of people who don't have a legal remedy. So yes, there are people who are doing this. Plaintiffs, lawyers, yes, lots in the United States. You know, there's a um, a number of cases going on in the United States that we are watching outside of our own law firm to see how people are doing. We're watching the human trafficking field. We're watching La Luz del Mundo, which is a, gr a big, huge cult in Mexico that's being sued in the United States. There are a lot of cases, small and large, that are taking place. And we have to hope that as a um, society that we can see 
that this is an injustice that needs to be dealt with within the legal system and within our legislatures, quite frankly. It's just, it's fantastic to to speak to someone who's really doing so much amazing work in this area because I often am just speaking to people on the other end who have come out of a cult and are experiencing a lot of trauma. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in what we can do to affect change and to try and improve things. And I absolutely see this as like a, a human rights issue. And I mean, you know, what an interesting thing you've decided to do with your so-called retirement. <laughs> Yes, my so-called retirement, I've known as a person who's been retired a number of times in the past and failed. I'm sorry to say, or I'm happy to say, actually, that I have failed miserably at retirement. And I must say that I am inspired by a story that someone told me about how abortion laws were changed in Ireland. And what I've been told, at least, is that a number of women older women, grandmotherly old women with gray hair when contraceptives were illegal, went to the police station with contraceptives and turned themselves in. And no one could, you know, quite bear to prosecute them. And so it led to a revolution. So I think that those of us who are perhaps as I have been struggling through retirement, you know, our services and our uh, talents and skills are much needed. So uh, how lucky am I that I have found the place to put that in service of people who have trusted and been betrayed? Indeed. And I just want to finish up on a question about what has working with victim survivors, these people who you just mentioned, what has that taught you about cults and their their tactics and their practices and the harms that they inflict? Well, I can say in terms of the harms, to start with that, that it is enormous, the psychological damage that is done to people. I think that Part of the harm is that because of the way that manipulation and coercion is used in cults, that people come out actually not understanding what happened to them. And so it is not uncommon that we will have people who have been processing the sexual assault that they endured for years, not understanding that they were actually assaulted. And it really robs people of their lives. On the other hand, what I have also learned is that the survivors that I have dealt with are enormously resilient, resourceful. They have been through extraordinary harm uh, of all kinds, not just sexual harm, but as you've mentioned, emotional, financial And in a society where we tend to look down on them as having made a bad choice, as if that was something that was their fault. So I think they have a lot of things stacked against them, but I see people recovering. I think that that's the main thing for me is that we see our clients as enormously resourceful, purposeful, dogged (laughs) in trying to gain back some of that agency and accountability that was taken from them. So true. And I think a lot of the people I speak with, the very reason that they, if they joined rather than having been born or brought up in a cult, 
so many of the personal qualities that cause them to be so devoted means that they have so much to give, right? They have this amazing devotion. Absolutely. Yes. And to go back to what we started with, that they are trusting human beings, you know, and that you and I and every single one of your listeners uh, could have made the same decision at any particular point, those kinds of transition points in our lives where we happen to meet the wrong person. And so that's been their path. But they are the very qualities, in, in fact, that perhaps made them vulnerable to this were the spiritual seekers, people who wanted to inquire as to the meaning of life and to make a better world. Those are all the positive things that they still have to give us. Yeah, that's exactly right. Is there anything else that you wanted to let our listeners know or or speak about before we finish up today, Carol? Uh, No, I don't think so. I would say that, again, that I think the main thing that those of us who have not been in cults need to do is to support those people who are coming out, understanding that the vulnerabilities that they have are the same vulnerabilities that we have and that they need our support. They need services from society. They need therapeutic care to be able to process. And that as a society, we should be helping to reintegrate people back into society when they've had come out of these terrible experiences. Yes, and often they've been taught that, you know, those in society are are evil or bad or not worth their time. So I think we can do a lot to prove to them that that is absolutely not the case. that's That's a very good idea that we have the idea that we're going to prove that all of that that was taught to them was wrong and that people do care. Exactly. Carol Murchison, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure as well. Thanks so much for listening, and you can find links to some of Carol's work in the show notes. You can access early and ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also grab a copy of my book, Do As I Say, that link's in the show notes too. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support with or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. Let's Talk About Sects is produced and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Editing and mixing by Matt Brazel and with music by Joe Gould, whose wonderful soundtrack album Nobody Joins a Cult is out now. Thanks again to Carol Murchison for taking the time to share some of her work with me for this episode. 
Kia ora world, I'm Kaz. I'm Liz. And I'm Lindy. And together we are Cult Chat. We're coming to you over the airways from little old Aotearoa, New Zealand, land of flightless birds, hobbits, marmite, and also some really wacky groups. And that's why we're here. On Cult Chat, we ask whether Kiwis know how to recognise a culty group and give tips on how to sniff out the telltale signs that a group is harmful. Join us as we unpack the cult playbook, talk to survivors of New Zealand cults and interview experts in the field. Journey with us as we traverse the cultiverse. Cult Chat is available on various streaming platforms and social media.